Hello and welcome to this, the third episode of Here's the Thing, Eight Minute Movies. One of those, one way around. Sometime I will decide what this is called, and that is not today. Hello, I am Kieran. Uh, and I'm Peter, and I feel like our which is the title and which is the subtitle is kind of our own version of the thing that we're playing um, with which you. One of, which one of them is infected, though? Mm. Uh, the subtitle. Oh, well, we'll mm. have to keep an eye on that subtitle. How are you feeling today, Peter? I'm feeling all right, you know, all things considered. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not loving that every time someone asks you how you're feeling you have to kind of caveat it around 2020 but sure whatever how are you feeling today well today i'm fine apart from the terrible terrible anxiety about the state of the world and my own place in it but aside from that fine (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah we could sum up this year with asking people how they are with fine asterisk yeah Uh, everything is asterisk (laughs) (laughs) i feel fine terms and conditions apply yes Um, all right um last time i forced you to introduce the concept as a punishment for your hubris Mm -hmm. um and so i guess the duty falls to me this time so i am medically obsessed with the thing a film from 1982 And I have decided to make this podcast wherein I, a person who has seen it 100 million times, forces my friend Peter, who has seen it perhaps five times, uh, to watch it in excruciating detail while I vomit up every possible fact I can find about it. And we, we talk about it so much that it robs it of any charm or joy that it has for either of us. What a great concept. Do you agree? Let's both learn to hate the thing together. (laughs) I've got a longer journey than you, my friend. It'd be interesting if the trajectory of this podcast is me learning to love the thing while you just slowly turn against it. (laughs) Spoilers, episode 14 is just you talking while I sit there in abject silence. Yeah. (laughs) Smoking a cigar. (laughs) Which I stub out on a photo of Kurt Russell. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I would be very impressed if that was the ending of this, uh, but given how 2020 has been, like you say, who fucking knows what anything yeah. is anymore? Nothing has any meaning. Let's all just watch movies in tiny chunks. So, where are we? First of all, I guess uh, we've reached 24 minutes into the thing now. Uh, so... What are you, how are you feeling about it? What are you feeling about these first three little chunks I've exposed you to? Well, I, I am noticing that in this format that we have going, um, I'm noticing the structure of the film a lot more. Like It's just making itself a lot more apparent to me. And um, so it's occurring to me that at this, sta- at this stage of, of the film, we're still in the, the, the stage of building up mysteries so d- during this segment of the f- of the film as well we've got a lot of new little mysteries introduced and a lot of questions being raised and not very many answers being given but it feels like also by the end of this segment we're just getting going to start getting towards some answers not yet fully being provided but starting to be hinted at absolutely absolutely 
Mm. Um, yeah, I, I'm I, oddly I'm enjoying the format because um, I think it came up last time. Like forcing me to pay attention to specific chunks of it is um, helping bring out scenes and stuff that I just sort of gloss over when I'm watching the film because. I've seen it so many times. Also, um, I have noticed that the major beats of the film do seem to fit quite nicely into this eight-minute format. So it seems like uh, each time we've done this, the bit that we've watched has told a little story that is self-contained. Mm. Um, when I did the uh, year and a half of in-depth uh, movie research while preparing for this podcast, I discovered that uh, scientifically most films are easily broken into eight minute chunks. Oh, well, there you go. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It was just, it was just an, a number that was easy to remember. I didn't do any research for this. Mm. I, I, I almost believed that. I, I almost <laughs> believed that. I, I apologize to you and the listener. <laughs> no, but it, it does make sense, right? There's probably something about the, human attention span that has gradually evolved in how people edit these films to be most effective absolutely absolutely uh um the thing is is quite a slow burn film really i mean Mm. um it's not as slow burn as alien uh where of course you don't really get a hint of the alien until halfway through a two-hour film but i think it does sort of take its time getting to those mysteries that you brought up earlier Mm. shall we get into it then no first of all no (laughs) (laughs) before we uh before we dig into the meat of the podcast podcast meat um I thought we could talk a little bit about the uh, the 1950s, the Thing from Another World film, mm. um, which is obviously where all this ended up coming from. Yes. Have you seen the 1951 film, The Thing from Another World? Uh, I haven't seen it. You, we did talk briefly about it before. There is a, mm. a carrot involved. <laughs> yes. 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 So... Um, Again, just to summarize it, The Thing from Another World is a 1951 black and white horror film based on the 1938 novella Who Goes There by John Campbell, which is where all of this stuff came from originally. It sticks fairly close to the plot of the book and differs in, like you say, that the monster is what they call a sentient carrot originating from plant life but needing to feed on blood to survive. There's no shape-shifting, really, um, which was probably budgetary in 1951. (laughs) Um, it was produced by Howard Hawks, uh, who came to be known for his strong female characters. And indeed, there is one of those in uh, The Thing from Another World. The film, as we've mentioned already, starts the same way as The Thing, with the no real opening credits and the uh, letters burning in on the screen. Yeah. How much money do you think it made in 1951? And how popular do you think it was? I mean, well, I, I don't even know how much money a very popular film from that period would make i, I, I know, I know even... these, these are difficult and unfair questions yeah no fairness in this at all like i could pluck a number out of thin air and have absolutely no idea how plausible it is let's <laughs> say uh, sorry what were the two things it was uh how much did it make on release and mm-hmm. how popular was it how popular in what metric <laughs> 
um, uh, uh, any any metric you choose, let, let's go with that. <laughs> do you, do you, uh, uh, all right, all right. On a, on a scale of one to ten, where one is not popular and ten is the most popular. Uh, okay, then I am gonna say um, how much money it made. See, that implies it made money, but maybe it lost money, which is plausible as well. Um, uh, I'm going to say it about broke even, is what I'm going to say. And um, I am going to say that on a scale of 1 to 10, it was a 3 in popularity on account that if it was a 1 in popularity then it would be so unpopular that no one would have cared about it enough in 1982 to make another version of it maybe i don't know now see i i i think you you've um you've slipped into your jaded millennial mindset there peter right um the film made two million dollars on release sounds like a lot which is 21 million dollars today um and in 1951, it was more popular than any other science fiction film released that year, including The Day the Earth Stood Still and mm. When Worlds Collide. I've seen at least one of those. Yeah, it was the 46th most popular film released that year in any category. Huh. Yeah. I just so, didn't uh, think it would do anything. Like No, um, hugely popular, apparently. Hmm. Which, of course, led to it being re-released over time. Uh, and John Carpenter saw one of those re-releases as a child, which caused him to read the short story in the high school. And here we are now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I got one thing right, which is that if it had completely died, then I don't think anyone would have really known or cared about it in 1982. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So are we getting into it now? Or are you going to thwart me at every turn? <laughs> um, yeah. Do you know what? Now, now is the time. Now is the. I, I like how you're surprised when I say no to you every time, despite me reading you the script before we start recording. <laughs> well, good. Let's get into it. <laughs> well, fine. Let's do the podcast then. All right. So before we start, I'm just going to uh, review your answers from last time to the questions I had. So to who is infected? Uh, and currently, you think that's just Norris? Yeah. And what happens next, which is they land at the wrecked Norwegian camp. You got, you still think you might be all right with that one? I, I think I'm all right with that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you have seen it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Marvellous. Then let's watch minutes 16 to 24 of The Thing. Uh, so as before, I'm just going to read the um, headings out, and if you've got something you want to chip in with, like yeah. uh, it, it, just say stay quiet. If you don't, <laughs> after like five or six seconds, I'll just move on to the next one. Yeah. The helicopter crosses the snowfields. So um, this is all filmed above the ice fields of Juneau, Alaska. Mm-hmm. All the exterior shots. Um, if you were a real helicopter buff, you'd notice that the helicopter exterior and interior don't actually match up. It's a different model of helicopter. The one they're filming from the inside of it has a wider canopy so they can get better shots out of the front of it. All right, okay. The exterior helicopter shots are all filmed in Juneau, Alaska. The interior shots are all filmed in 
Stuart, British Columbia. Oh, um, so they're actually filmed in a different helicopter and in a different location. Exactly, yeah. Filming stuff is weird. For, for, yeah, many of the shots in this sec- in this eight minute section are jumping back and forth around the globe where they're actually filmed. Yeah, uh, I did notice just immediately from this point onwards. Uh, there seems to be a more traditional use of scoring through the through the whole of the next segment, actually. Uh, so we get, I hear harps in here, a lot of strings, mm. uh, piano, some wind instruments, some brass later, I think. Um, so quite a quite a full orchestra playing mostly just quiet background stuff, but um, but definitely a switch from the almost entirely synth stuff that we were hearing before i don't know the reason for that choice i've been trying to think about what might be behind that but i I don't really have uh, anything but it is kind of interesting that it does move to a more kind of traditional scoring for this segment i i think in part it's um it's very it's a traditional way to um build suspense isn't it with um yeah orchestral music in the background like uh, a lot of films use that well maybe it's just because the thing isn't here the thing has been here but it's not here <laughs> it's moved on you think yeah the, the presence of the thing is detectable by um synths by yeah synths. oh <laughs> yeah well, we'll definitely test that theory later yeah but it's an exciting one i like it mm. the two men arrive at a burned out camp does um does this camp look at all familiar to you? Um, oh, I think you might have mentioned it before at yeah. some point, but is this the same camp but just destroyed? It is. This set is the Norwegian base, which is just their camp, Outpost 31, but after being exploded at the end of the film. So if you're confused about um, filmmaking with different shots in different locations, this is very far in the future from the other shots as well. Mm. Several months later. <laughs> This set is uh, built in Stewart, uh, British Columbia. And a fun fact I don't think I mentioned last time is that because Stewart is quite a small town, there isn't really room to put up all the people involved in a production. So they, they towed in a barge and they all lived on the barge. <laughs> That's where all the crew spent all their time, either in the barge or in one of the bars. <laughs> or I presume also working, you know. Um, well, yeah. I don't want to imply they're all alcoholics, just, you know, it was the <laughs> 80s, man. Yeah. They enter the camp and explore. We have MacReady here with a uh, Hey Sweden, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I think he gets confused about earlier as well in the he, in the film. Does, yeah, I think what we're getting, and we'll have a bit more of this later, is that MacReady isn't really that interested in details. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's he's a broad strokes man, I guess. Yeah. Um, this particular shot starts with a shot through the window of the camp, looking out of them as they arrive in the helicopter, tracking them as they arrive through the door, which I thought was, it was a very good shot. It's quite unusual. It definitely makes it seem like they're being watched, which really yeah. sort of ramps up the paranoia at this point. This whole section here where they're exploring the Norwegian base, uh, was much longer in the original script and in the Alan Dean Foster adaptation. Oh, we'll get to Alan Dean Foster at some point, I'm sure. um but but it was shortened for time and i think it kind of works because they they get to all the beats they need to get to here in the norwegian base quite quickly yeah 
The uh, w- uh, what did you think about the lighting here? Uh oh. You know what? I didn't even really think about the lighting. It's good. <laughs> Guess <laughs> good lighting. Well done. <laughs> so this is all um, John Carpenter notes. Uh, the idea of Dean Cundy, the cinematographer, yeah, and director of photography, obviously. Um, so he lit this set with a lot of deep blues and that sort of um, gives it that Arctic look. I was thinking that it does look cold and I don't think that's just because it's full of icicles. I think there's (laughs) more to it than that. Yeah, they do. They do a really good job with the lighting here. I think no one is around. So this is the point where, um, I find the music starts being really effective at mm. setting the scene. I mean, you've already mentioned some of it's and the, the, like the devastation in the camp they find, like, you know, it's all on fire when they arrive this section, there's like enormous holes in the wall that obviously you wouldn't really want to have in an Antarctic base. So it's yeah. like almost like what happened here, you know, what, what caused all this destruction? Yeah. We start to hear, um, the motif that we heard on, um, since earlier as well uh, i think we're hearing that on brass there might be some synth mixed into it i couldn't tell uh, after listening to it a couple of times uh, but yeah it's uh, definitely an effective use of that mo- motif there's a real sense of mystery and dread to it i mean we we spoke briefly um before the podcast started about the orchestral aspects of the score Mm-hmm. and uh, we couldn't really seem to find anything out about them at the time, uh, aside from that an orchestra definitely was involved at some point. <laughs> yeah, and we don't know what orchestra or where it was recorded or anything like that, but um, we know it was uh, conducted by the composer, but uh, apart from that, don't know. They find a bloody fire axe embedded in a door. Now, uh, do we find out how that got there in the prequel? Um, yes, absolutely, we do. Um, so, in the prequel film, uh, there's a thing crawling on the wall, and a guy chops it in half with a fire axe and gets embedded in the door. So that's all thing juice on the axe there. Mm. Probably not the best to grab. Um, this is an interesting point to talk about some of the stuff from the prequel that I'm mm. not an enormous fan of, is that it it really does go through all the beats you'd expect so if there's something in this base that's laid out now that's a mystery yeah that mystery will be explained in the prequel <laughs> right they will they you will see what happened to x and y in gratuitous detail and um i'm just not sure it needed to be done because as with so many things the scariest thing is what's in your what's in your imagination right not what you've been shown i guess since they decided to do this prequel they felt an obligation to answer all those questions and uh it's it's just a bit on the nose maybe just to kind of tick all the boxes yeah yeah exactly exactly uh it it is a very fine line to walk and i do respect the work that they put into it like Mm. obviously there's a lot of work that went into matching stuff shot for shot from this film yes it's just that I'm not sure whether the project should have been embarked on in the first place. <laughs> right. And there are some choices. I think we'll get to one a bit later, which seem a bit weird. Mm. They find a trail of blood. The blood leads to a dead man in a chair. Now, um, he's a suicide victim. Does it really strike you as a suicide? Um, 
Well, I mean, certainly the razor and the wrists um, point to that, but then there's the massive, like, gaping yeah. gash in the neck as well. Exactly. I mean, the the thing that I've always noticed here is, um, you missed a ding, um, <laughs> that he's cut both of his wrists and also his throat down to the bone. That doesn't, right. that doesn't seem like a thing you can do. And yeah, that doesn't also doesn't seem like that was done with that little razor. Oh, well, I mean, it's a straight razor. You can probably get a cut like that, but oh, maybe I don't. I don't think you could. Uh, maybe it's morbid to talk about this. I don't know. You, you. I just genuinely don't think you could cut both. Well, I mean, what's the order he's done it in? He's cut both wrists and his throat. <laughs> I'm like, so if you go throw hang on oh it's get this is gonna get terrible so all right so he's holding in his right hand he cuts his left wrist yeah then well he's no he's he's still holding the razor he's right no so i think he's gonna start hang on hang on hang on yeah yeah here's the order right so he's puts he takes his his cutthroat razor out and goes it's scary here i'm going to kill myself he puts the razor in his left hand slashes his right wrist uh probably cutting through all those tendons and stuff puts the razor in his right hand yeah. cuts his left wrist then slashes his throat man that I, <laughs> it, oh, it's a suicide I mean because we see it in the prequel as a suicide but again yeah. should we be using that as a primary source who knows yeah. um, but <laughs> if it is it's well overkill I, I, I mean I, I sort of like the implication that he's killed himself but I, I don't know I um it seems like it seems like the gist is that something happened that was so scary that he killed himself extra hard. Yeah, and so at this point the base is already cold as well because the um the blood is going to be frozen as it's still coming out as well. Mm, yeah. So there's a lot going on there. <laughs> Jumping, jumping around in time and space again. Um, this is filmed in Los Angeles at Universal Studios, and um, this is actually the first uh, rubber effect shot for um, Rob Bottini in the film, the uh, the suicidal man. And they were all a bit worried because it didn't look that realistic. But he came out and slathered on some slime all over it, and that, now it looks great on film. I would say this effect stands up quite well. Yeah, no, I don't think there's anything that's particularly unrealistic. About the shot, apart from as we were talking about the uh, trying to explain the story behind it. Um, uh, well, I mean, again, we don't know all the facts. Maybe he was a juggler. <laughs> yes, that's true. I believe um, it's um, pronounced jugular. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. They find notes and a video camera. I just like to say that this foreshadows every moment in a video game where you find an audio log for the rest of all time. Mm. <laughs> uh, and we kind of get another thing here of um, McCready not being really interested in details here because of a, a brief exchange between uh, McCready and, and, and the doc here where he says, like, what are you doing? And the doc says that he wants to take the notes with him. There might be like important work here, mm. whereas McCready doesn't care. It's getting late. We should move on. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm, I think it's also reminding the audience that they're pressed for time. Remember the uh, from the last episode, the storm is closing in. Yes. Uh, and if Achieves white out before they're back, then they're both going to die. 
they find a block of ice with a hole carved out of it. So um, I think just briefly, we are going to have to go back to the prequel here because yep. uh, this is one of the few bits that I remember from watching the prequel uh, is that the thing just sort of bursts out from this in in the prequel, which does not seem like a very good interpretation of what we're being shown here. Yeah, I, I completely agree. This is one of my least favorite bits about the prequel is that it, it just bursts out of that thing like a stripper bursting out of a cake. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Leaving behind a perfect rectangle in its wake. The The only way I can think that that might have even worked is if it decided to just heat itself up really hot on the outside so all the ice melted around it and then it was just like boom out through the soft bit of the top but i am not giving them the benefit of the doubt on that you um like an an icy thing bursting like that is absolutely not going to work that way okay but hear me out what if like all the while it it was in there biding its time very slowly punching like a dotted line around <laughs> the, the ice and then uh, wham. you think it's super into perforation yeah <laughs> well i mean sure but maybe of like your intestines or something oh. <laughs> uh, dear. Um, so i mean i i would like to think that what we're actually being shown here is at some point they attempted to cut this thing out of the ice manually yeah. oh absolutely absolutely and um this whole scene is a homage to the 1951 film oh. where they um that's precisely what happened they the 1951 film spends a lot more time at the ufo and doing things near the ufo so the ufo crashes they go to the ufo they accidentally blow the ufo up they find the pilot embedded in the ice they cut out a big square of ice they bring it back to their base uh and they uh they don't actually cut it out in that they they leave it in a in a room which is accidentally warm and it it breaks uh-huh. its way out of the ice but the ice the big ice cube is definitely in the film yeah i think these spooky strings here going back to music are, yeah. are, are excellent they really heighten the tension of the scene and i think this is actually one of the first carpenter recorded tracks uh in the show yeah and actually this is one of the parts of the score that stuck out to me even before we decided to do this whole podcast Mm. is that i remembered this as being one moment where the strings are very prominent and very prevalent which is not the norm necessarily for the score Mm. but in horror you can't beat a bit of spooky strings can you yeah and again it's saying the thing was here as evidenced by that hole but is not here now so you see this is my whole string <laughs> thing theory <laughs> if your theory comes out to be correct at the end i'm going to be so pleased <laughs> the men leave to return to camp they find a burned body so i guess this is the first real clue as to the nature of the thing you don't really get a very good look at it at the moment but um it's definitely something weird about it you can see that yeah they just look like a it just looks like a weird smoking skeleton at this point yeah um the monsters in this film uh, like the skeleton here and some other ones that i'm sure we'll get to uh they're slathered in a chemical carbapole um which is actually the binding ingredient used in Twinkies. Delicious. 
<laughs> so they're all delicious. Don't lick them. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, the other ingredient that makes them glistening is uh, KY jelly. <laughs> they return to Outpost 31 in the helicopter. The dog watches them return through the window. So you still haven't been given a really good reason to be suspicious of the dog yet, mm. but there is something about the behavior and the use of shots here, uh, which is unnerving, but it's difficult to pin down exactly why. Yeah. I mean, uh, absent the knowledge that we get later on, it, it just seems like a weird shot. Why is the dog watching them arrive back with such intensity? Why does it seem interested in the fact that they've brought something back with them? Hmm. The men manhandle something heavy inside. They've brought the body back with them. They reveal it to all the horrified men. So um, Kurt Russell calls this scene an eight-man acting contest, (laughs) 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 which I thought was quite good. They see who is the most horrified. There's a lot of hands going over mouths and things. Um, But we'll get to that. Um, The... um, the smoke rising off the monster is uh, a substance called AB smoke, uh, which is two compounds where you, you spray one on and then you spray the other on and then smoke is evolved. Um, and uh, it's not legal to use it anymore because it's not safe to breathe. Ooh. Uh, so this is not a great shot from the point of view of these guys. <laughs> They're, all that coughing is absolutely legitimate. Yeah, and it just looks like it stinks, honestly. <laughs> it just really... <laughs> yeah, no, they, they Rob Bettine did a really good job with this sculpture. Mm. Um, back to AB Smoke, uh, the Aliens cast, uh, they all got treated for lung problems because of AB Smoke. <laughs> it's nasty stuff. Yeah, I, I, I found an interesting quote somewhere, I can't remember where I heard it, about why using physical models is so much better than using CGI, because if this was a CGI shot, they'd be looking at a a green blob on a table, right? Or Sierpinski triangles or whatever. And they'd be told to look terrified at this thing that you've seen. And when you act terrified, the actor's brain goes, I must act terrified of this thing. And they go, ah, but when they actually physically see something in front of them that is revolting and terrifying, their brain will go through a whole bunch of legitimate micro expressions, which you don't pick up with. Mm. Obviously when they're thinking about acting, they don't deliver. Yeah. I used to be a bit kind of eye rolly about people who were overly enamored with physical effects because while I didn't really have an opinion about it, I feel like, Maybe it's just maybe it was just a reaction of just being resistant to change mm. in techniques and stuff because like a lot of CG is really good, but um, I do the more I watch uh, older films and rewatch older films, the more I do get the sense that physical effects of of a lot of different kinds actually really do add something, and you really can tell even if you can tell to the point you, you can tell yeah. that it is an effect and not real yeah, break, it they, breaks your immersion it it it, it does uh, it does a little bit i guess but there's still something about it even in those situations where you feel like the in some intangible way you feel like the actors are responding to something that is really there 
Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, uh, I, I love physical effects, mm. but I think the key is to, the key nowadays is to use physical effects and CGI to fill the gaps. Mm. Um, which is what their original plan was, uh, for the prequel. Um, yeah. was to use physical effects and then, you know, paint out the people operating the puppets with wires with CGI. And that, that would have been a great use of it. Yeah. But yeah, I totally agree. Like, um, it's really hard to describe, but the physicality of the things adds something to them. It does. You missed a ding. <laughs> Blair is told to perform an autopsy. Remind me what Blair's role is again. Um, he is the camp's chief biologist. Okay. I guess he's being told to perform the autopsy rather than the doctor because this is not a human question mark. Yeah. Well, yeah, you bring that up. It is weird that they don't ask Copper, the camp's doctor, to perform the autopsy, but he does help out. So, yeah, it's it, yeah. I, I, the reason I asked it is because yes, why wouldn't the doctor be in charge of, of that situation? Yeah, that's that, that's a that's a great question and one which we don't know the answer to. Mm. Finally, we get a close up of the grotesque body. And there's more kind of lingering looks on the various actors here. And this is something uh, where I'm not sure whether I'm reading too much into it or not. Because to me, at least, now that I suspect that Norris has been uh, infected at this point, there's something about the look that he gives that it's it looks to me like he's almost thinking about something else like he's he's not think he's not just being horrified at the situation that is in front of him he's thinking okay what do i do now that this information is going to be it has been found and is going to be investigated yeah it's a it's a really interesting take on that i um I've mean, I've never really paid that much attention to what what he is doing because um, that shot is placed in the middle of a um, vaguely hilarious uh, collection of reaction shots. It, it pans mm. pans between every man looking horrified and then looking at the next man who to in, as if to say I I'm horrified. Are you horrified? And they like <laughs> yes, yeah. me too. And it's almost <laughs> like yeah, it's almost like he's not quite horrified enough. Like there's something else yeah. on his mind. Yeah, that that is that is a really interesting point, and not something that I have really noticed before. We we spoke about this slightly earlier, and um, while there isn't, according to you know the cast and crew, a legitimate infection timeline for everyone, like an official one, you don't know what individual direction they were receiving from John Carpenter on the set at the time. Yeah, because if if uh, the actor legitimately didn't know if he was uh, infected or not. He maybe couldn't have put that much into his performance, but if he was given some sort of direction, which is that um, I don't think this character is going to be as horrified about this or something that mm. is something that changes the performance somehow. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Uh, then maybe it's plausible that, that there is an element of that in, in what's going on here. Oh, that's a really interesting point. And um, with that, I think we end. We reach the end of this eight-minute segment. I'm obliged to ask you two questions as yes. before. What do you think happens next? So I am not entirely sure. I remember some of the things that are going to happen quite soon in the in the film. 
Great. Is that is that the first one? I don't know. I think it is the first one. We've, we've been doing very bad at this. Today. Yes, <laughs> we're very bad at this sub game. Um, <laughs> oh, it sounded so good when I wrote it on the box. Yeah. <laughs> um. Oh God, where was I? Right. Yes. So. I also like that the game destroys your concentration. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that I am aware of exactly what happens next, but here, uh, here is something that I think is going to happen very soon in the film, is that Dr. Blair is going to go off on his own, and he is going to start running some simulations on his computer uh-huh. um, and figuring out how this infection works and um, figuring out the likelihood that someone else is infected but they've got to but the problem with this is that they've got to get they've got to get further down the plot for that to happen so that can't be the next immediate thing that happens I just remember that it happens quite soon Mm. so I'm trying to think what immediately happens next Um, I think we've got to get I think before we get there, we've got to do the thing with the dog. Yeah, yeah. I realised as soon as I said it, I nearly, <laughs> I nearly dung myself. <laughs> we wouldn't want you to dung yourself. Mm. Not, not on a recording, anyway. Uh, so, what do you mean by the thing with the dog? Yeah. So I think what happens is that. They're doing the autopsy, and we might get a few shots of that. I believe we get some shots of um, uh, people cutting into the body. And at some point, somewhere else, the dog is just around, and someone is going to tell um, Clark to just deal with the dog, put put the dog away with the others and then the dog is going to be sent to the uh to the the kennels with the others uh i'm gonna say now that's a that's a very very good guess uh they do the autopsy the dog is around and someone tells clark to put the dog with the others and it goes to the kennels yeah now um it probably hasn't happened but has your infection timeline tracker changed no and by that, I mean that there might be more than one person that is infected at the moment, but... Um, you have no evidence to go but on. But I've got like. no evidence. Okay, so on who I don't think is infected, I think we can safely say McCready isn't, because I believe we have some scenes uh, with him later where he's on his own and not acting like he's infected. Uh, Dr. Blair, uh, not infected for a similar reason that we see him later on running simulations to find out who might be infected. I don't think he'd be doing that if he was. Gary, not infected because we see that on-screen infection, I believe, happen much later in the film and he actually gets infected by Dr. Blair, I believe. Um Dr. Copper not infected because we see him get surprised attacked in quite a memorable way later on in the film. 
Uh, and for everyone else, I would say at the moment, I am less certain whether they have been infected or not. So everyone else is sort of a maybe. I don't think Childs has been infected, though, I will say. The only definites on your list are Norris, and your maybes are Bennings, Fuchs, and Childs. I'd say my maybes are Bennings, Clark, Fuchs, Windows, Knowles, Palmer, and Childs, yes, sort of, but I'm gonna I'm leaning towards no with Childs. Brilliant. Okay. Well, uh I guess that's the end of this episode of the podcast. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do special effects with my mouth anymore. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, so uh, I think it's traditional to end with where we can be found on the internet. I'm Kieran J. Walsh on Twitter, and you are Kestrel, Kestrel Pie. Pie. Twitter, like the worst kind of meat pie you'd ever get, but without the E. Yes, Kestrel like the bird, and Pie like the irrational number. That's almost a catchphrase now. It is. Mm. Not a very good Uh, one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been lovely working with you and lovely doing this for you, the listener. Have a lovely day. Goodbye. All right, then. Bye-bye.